You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Revelation chapter 3. We're doing the final letter to what is known as the seven churches of Revelation. So in many ways, this is, you could say, the last recorded letter of instruction to the church from Jesus Christ. Obviously, of course, we have the whole Bible still, but in this sense that it is the last epistle, we could say, written to the churches. And after that, in this book, we will be moving on to what I've called and mentioned about the last era of history, that final era of history before things wrap up. So this is really important to us. Let me just recap what we've seen. Do you remember the church to Ephesus? This was the church that lost its first love. We had Smyrna, which was the persecuted church, the one that Jesus had nothing bad to say about, but just encouraged them. We have Pergamum. That was that mixing of politics and a state church. We had Thyatira. I've just put the immoral church there. They were doing things. We had Sardis, the sleeping church. Remember, Jesus' message to them was just wake up. And then Philadelphia, that was the church of brotherly love that had the open door. And then today, we will be looking at what is known as the church of Laodicea, which I've put the church of people's or man's opinions. That is literally what the word Laodicea means, men's opinions. And this tells us a lot about what this church uh, is going on in this church. What it really means is that man was the head of this church and not Jesus. We know from Colossians 1.18, it says, He is also the head of the body. He's speaking about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Yet in Laodicea, what we're going to see is that they did not give Christ first place in everything. They were more than happy to have themselves in that position. And the danger here is very clear. When you do that, it is no longer Christ's word that will be leading you. It will be man's word that is leading you. And when you put your own opinion and your own words into that place, you put yourself as the highest authority and there lies trouble. So this was undoubtedly a compromising group, a group that were in error what we would call doctrinally, that means about what the Christian faith believes. In reality, you could say this church was nothing more than a religious organization. They were very self-sufficient, and that self-sufficiency kept them from actually seeing their real state. Now, here is the issue. The church is here on this earth to bring testimony to Jesus Christ. That means we witness for him, for his message, for his gospel, for his coming kingdom, and for the judgment to come. We do this by obedience to the word of God, by living out his truths, by loving him, worshipping, glorifying him, testifying to him. We do that in our lives, we do that in our churches, we do that in our own communities. That is our purpose here on this earth. And if the word of God is not the authority and Jesus is not the head of the church, then whom are you testifying to? Yourself. You're a testimony, you're a temple to mankind. And this is the problem of Laodicea, which is one of the reasons why I believe this church was chosen. So let's read the text again now. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. I'll read it all. It says, verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Laodicea, just so you've got reference there, we are now looking at that church right at the bottom on the south. I'll give you a little bit of history in this. Some of it's quite interesting. This was a city that had changed its names many times as it changed hands of different rulers as old cities often did in ancient empires. In the third century BC, it fell into the hands of a man called Antioch, Antiochus II. He was, we know Antiochus, one of the descendants of him as Antiochus Epiphanes, who is mentioned in the Bible a lot as a despotic ruler. This was one of his uh, forebears. He was the king of Syria in the third century, and he had a, a wife named Laodicea. This is where the name, he named this city in honor of her. So this is, he's doing a nice thing naming a city after him. However, he got bored of this wife and he moved on to another one, as kings often would in the ancient world. However, that didn't work out for him and he came back to Laodicea and she accepted him back and then shortly after that he died of suspected poisoning. <laughs> it was never proven, but a woman scorned. is the, that's in, the, in the historical record, most people assume that she killed him and uh, he was a pretty brutal man by all accounts. Laodicea, though, was a very wealthy city. It had wool, was one of their major exports. They were very well known for making garments, for making these fabulous clothes, which I believe is one of the reasons why Jesus references garments and being naked and these sorts of things. He's making a point to them. It was also a banking centre, as we've seen. It also had some pretty nice ruins, if you can see there. It's a beautiful town. That's one of the old streets leading up to the city. This is, again, in Turkey just so you can see that's an amphitheatre, it hasn't been very well excavated, these, st these things are still actually ongoing, the excavation of Laodicea at the moment, they're trying to make it, Turkey are trying to make it like a new tourist centre, a little bit like Ephesus at the moment, and so they're uncovering lots of new stuff uh, all the time in Laodicea. This is one of the old temples, there, is a, there was a temple to Asculapes, the healing god who we've talked about before, we saw temples to him elsewhere, this was the one with the snake curled around a coil. That's the healing god. There was also, a, wherever you had one of these temples, you generally had a, a medical center, as they would call it. They don't know whether this is that exact temple. As you can see, this, all that really remains often is columns. And if they don't have an inscription on them, it's hard to tell. But we do know that Laodicea was well known for producing a famous eye ointment, an eye salve that was sold and exported all over the world, which again is another reason why Jesus references, you know, the blindness and eyes in this letter, he's making a point to them there. So this was uh, Laodicea. In 60 AD it was destroyed by an earthquake and the historical records show us that after this, to show you the self-sufficiency of this city, the Roman government offered them help in rebuilding which they rejected and they, they said we, want, we will rebuild on our own, thank you very much and they were wealthy enough to do that so they rebuilt the entire city on their own and some of the inscriptions that we find on these temples have the little expression out of our own resources built on them and that is really typical of some of the lessons we're going to see in this church. It speaks to us and it is a warning to our culture today 
our culture today and because of our culture the church is influenced unfortunately sometimes by that culture we're plagued with materialism with consumerism compromise self-sufficiency we have a rugged individualism in the rest I'm not saying that all of things are necessarily bad all the time but if they become the primary source that defines your culture then you'll probably run into the error like Laodicea did we see this in the church unfortunately with this what I call the smorgasbord approach to Christianity and you may have encountered this People come to Christianity, oh, I like that part of Christianity, I like that love part, don't like that part, I'll swap that part, I'm going to go to some other religion, I'll take that part, I like that, that, I'm going to put that there, and you end up just sort of making, by the end of the line, you've just made your own religion up. And this is the very first thing that God warned us not to do, not to make God in our own image. But mankind does that all the time. We don't like what it says about God, we need to bring God down a little bit here so he's a bit more relatable to us, and we'll make sure that he doesn't actually care about that, and then we can live like this, and it won't matter. And we do that all the time. Isn't that, is that not really the history of religion on this earth? That is kind of what it is there. It was the first thing God warned us not to do. That was literally the first thing he warned us not to do. But that is what we see. And this is what happens when you make man the authority. Your preference for what is true, you become the final authority for determining truth, and thus you also have that attitude that if, if you believe that, and someone tells you that you're wrong, you have this, how dare you, sort of response. How dare they tell me that what I've said is true is not true. We, that is our culture today, yes? <laughs> I mean, that is exactly where we are. That is what the problem is when you make your own opinion the determiner of truth. Whereas we know that there is a higher source, a higher authority who has revealed truth to us. And we're, this is what we're studying. This is again what this book is about, the unveiling of the one who is the truth personified, and this will come out very clearly in this letter. So we dare not do that today, but that is often what happens in the culture and in the church. So let's see what Jesus Christ has to say about that. He says, to the letter of the church at Laodicea, write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. So he introduces himself with these particular characters titles the word amen there that's a hebrew word it's it means basically so be it it is done let it be confirmed it denotes a certainty a trustworthiness the idea is you don't argue with the amen you just you just affirm it you say amen to it that's the whole idea here it actually comes from the old testament let me read to you just a verse from isaiah 65 to show you how this word was understood isaiah 65 verse 16 says this because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. Now that phrase there that's translated God of truth, that literally says the God of amen. That's the same word, it's amen that's being translated as truth there. So it's, it denotes and has that understanding that something is true and you affirm that it is true. Now why is this emphasised? Like I said before, in Laodicea, and I would say equally to our culture, we are in a world where people want to determine that truth for themselves, and God is very clearly reminding them right now that he is truth. He is the one who sets truth. Amen also speaks to the idea of finality, or having the last word. We understand this. What do you say at the end of a prayer? What do I always say when I'm up here? You just say amen, don't you? And everyone says amen. It's the, final, it's the final word, that's the whole understanding of it. It speaks to having the last word, i.e. you don't answer back to it. You don't, you don't say, oh, excuse me, this is when God is speaking, that is how it is. He has the last word on these things. In this context, it is a reminder that Jesus Christ will have the final authority and say in our lives, as he will for the entire world. 
This is why it says he is the faithful true witness. He is also the beginning of the creation of God. The word beginning there is referring to source, not chronology. It's not talking about Jesus Christ being created. Jesus Christ was God. He was uncreated in that sense. It is talking about being the source and origin of all of creation. He is the creator. That is why he is the amen. That is why he can have the final say, the final authority on everything. No one else has that, can claim that. That is why. That's one of the reasons. He has the final word. No one will argue with his verdicts. On that day, no one will question his judgments. There will be no cause to do that. Right now, he allows people to question him. By an extension of his grace, he allows people to wander around breathing his air like he doesn't exist. He allows that now because at this moment, the church is here to testify to his forgiveness and his mercy, and he wants every single person to hear that message and come to him. So he allows people to reject him right now. But one day that will not be an option. That is, again, what we're studying in this book. When you know Jesus, there is no further need to search for more truth throughout the world. There is no need to delve into all the different spiritualities in the world. I'll explain why this is true. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is why it says that he is the faithful and true witness. This is really a clause that explains what amen means. He is the faithful and true witness. And of course, he is contrasting these people in Laodicea now who were unfaithful and they were in error and they were bearing false witness, we could say. He is making a very definite point here. But we do need to ask ourselves, a witness of what? Firstly, a witness of the word of God, a witness of the gospel, a witness that the revelation of his son is true. This is the will of the Father. He is witnessing to all these things. This is the very purpose that Jesus came to earth. One of my favorite verses that I know I often quote you from John chapter 18, that scene when Pilate, or Jesus is standing before Pilate and this Roman governor is assessing him to find out whether he should be executed or not. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. You see why it's so important that we don't accept this world's model that we can just sort of make up truth that suits us as long as we go along. When we do that, we are actually denying what Jesus said and what he came to do and also what he died for, to testify to this truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate said, well, what is truth? You see, the culture and, the, and God basically there, the two, what is truth, whatever I want it to be, I am the truth, Jesus says. That is the same question, really, that echoes throughout history. God went to great lengths to make sure that we could identify this person, this person who was truth personified, this Messiah, this saviour of the world, when he arrived. Let me digress a little bit from the text now, because I want to just show you this, because this is pivotal to our understanding of prophecy, because we're going to go on and talk about a lot of things that have not yet happened but will happen in the future. And I want to show you why we have such confidence that they will happen. And this is because what he said has happened, which was once a future thing, has happened, exactly as it said. So I want to show you that now. But I want to do it in the context of looking at the Amen, the faithful true witness, Jesus Christ. If you go right back to the book of Genesis, the first prophecy, and that's the first prediction, the first time that God said, I'm going to fix this world that got broken when sin and death entered this world, was a promise 
that uh, to Adam and Eve, do you remember the, that there would be a seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent? That was the first hint of Messiah. So it tells us that this person would be a seed of a woman. It would be, a child, be someone born to a woman. That's our first identification of the Messiah, a child born of a woman. Let's jump to Genesis 12. You have a promise confirmed to a man called Abraham that through one of his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was then concerned to his son Isaac and confirmed to his son Jacob. So therefore, we now know that not only would this be someone born to a woman, it had to be someone who was Jewish, someone who came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these are pretty distinctive identifications that we're getting here. Genesis 49 then promises that this Jewish person had to be from a specific family in Israel, the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7 then confirmed and detailed the promise more that not only would this person have to be from the line of Judah, he would have to be a descendant of King David, the line of David. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 announces that he would be born of a virgin, i.e. there would be a supernatural aura to his birth. Micah 5.2 then tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 2 then tell us that most of his ministry would be conducted in the Galilee area of northern Israel. Psalm 78 verse 1 and 2 tells us that he would be known for teaching in parables. Isaiah 6 verse 9 to 10 tells us that he would largely be rejected by his own Jewish nation. Isaiah 11 verse 10 tells us that Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, would largely accept him in many ways. Isaiah 35 verse 5 tells us that miracles would be associated with his teaching. Zechariah 9.9 tells us that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Isaiah 53 tells us that ultimately he would be despised and rejected by this world. Isaiah 53 verse 4 to 6 tells us that he would die for other people's sins and his death would involve being pierced. Psalm 22 verse 16 specifically tells us that his hands and his feet will be pierced. Exodus 12 verse 46 tells us that he would be killed on the date of Passover, the festival. You see how these are not vague, these are very, very specific pictures we're getting here. Psalm 118 verses 17 to 18 tells us that he would be resurrected and he would conquer death. And then Daniel chapter 9 tells us that all of this had to happen before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD. Now, let me just remind you, every single one of those prophecies, those scriptures that I've referenced and that picture... They, were, they come from the Old Testament. That means they were all written 500 to 1,500 years before Jesus Christ even existed. And we have copies of them dating back to 200 years before Jesus. No one knew the Christmas story. No one had read the Gospels. No, we didn't have a New Testament at this time. No one really knew anything. But yet, if I asked you, who is that describing? There can only be one man. Let me put it like this. How many Jewish men do you know that are descended from the line of King David who were born in Bethlehem, who didn't have a human father, who was, whose message was calling Israel back to God, who lived in the Galilee, who did miracles, who taught in parables, who was rejected by his own Jewish nation but accepted by many Gentiles and ultimately was sentenced to death for the sins of every, for other people, himself being innocent, and he was executed by a means that meant he had to have his hands and his feet pierced and it had to happen before 70 AD. There's no other candidate 
And God didn't leave an option for there to be another candidate open because this is what he was here to do, to testify to the truth. There is only one person in all of human history who can fulfill the requirements to be the saviour. One person and this is it. It's him, the amen, the faithful, the true witness. This is why when he speaks we need to listen This is why I said you do not need to start investigating every different religious claim. Every that comes from the world a lot. Well, how do you know Christianity is true? You haven't investigated everything. This is why, because there was no one else who could fulfil all of these claims, and there was a very specific reason why God gave us. And I've just given that's just a sampling that I could could have trebled that list of things to describe Jesus Christ to you before He ever existed on this earth. There was a reason why God did this. Isaiah 45, verses 21 to 22, God says this, Who has announced this from old? And he's asking the nation rhetorically, as in like, I have announced this. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What he's basically saying there, and what you have just heard, the reason why he gave us these prophecies in advance to explain so that we would know who the saviour of the world is, is for that one reason. He is God, he is a saving God, and he wants every single one to turn to him and be saved. That is it. That's the reason right there. Now, that truth will convict you in many ways. If you don't know the Lord particularly, that will sit in your heart and it will bother you, and Jesus will make that bother you until you admit that it's true, and you come to him and be saved. Now, you can walk the path of Laodicea, you can reject his truth, and you can try and come up with your own truth, or you can follow Jesus, and you can understand what it really means to be the true and faithful witness. When he speaks, we listen. Let's look at verse 15. He says to this church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is a strong word to this group of believers right here. He says, you're not cold nor hot. Now this is really a reference, I believe, to being the church as a group of body here in Laodicea. It says they were there, it's either healthy or unhealthy. He's telling them they're unhealthy. They're not hot nor cold, they're lukewarm. It's understood, I believe, against a medicinal background that they would have known because of the temple, the medical school they had in this city. Both hot and cold water were very useful. for They had med- medicinal properties. The hot water was often used for aching joints and for spas and all these things. Cold water, obviously, for life and refreshment in many ways. But lukewarm water was actually used at this time to induce vomiting, particularly if you mixed it with certain minerals. It was lukewarm and it would empty the stomach if you've been poisoned or for various different things it was one of their treatments that they use I believe that's basically what he's referencing here it was used to vomit the condition of the church was unhealthy its works were impotent it was ineffective to the point that it needs to be vomited out as in it's not doing anything good that's the imagery it's strong imagery but understood in against that backdrop from the standpoint of their ministry They were providing neither refreshment nor healing, and in fact they were causing nausea. Now that's quite a scathing assessment of this group of people. They were useless to the Lord and for his purposes as a church in the world. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Strong words again. (laughs) 
This is really what it means to be lukewarm. And you see the two different perspectives here. You see a group of people who are not listening to the truth of God's word. They are following their own vision of how they feel things should work out. And it's always very dangerous when you do this in many ways. They see themselves in one light, and here we're going to see the Lord tell them, no, this is how I really see you right now. They say that I'm rich, wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now, that is the attitude of this culture in Laodicea, and you know, for many in the Western world, that's probably our attitude too. They considered money to be a sign of blessing. They considered their self-sufficiency to be a Uh, something to be proud of, and they had independence, they had an abundance of resources, I imagine they had a very well-equipped sanctuary, if I could say it like that, everything they needed. If they needed something, they could obtain it. They didn't really need to rely on God for this, he wasn't really in the question, other than probably some words and prayers that were said because of routine. Their security came from the things in the world, but God was not really part of this. And often this is the case when life is too comfortable. God gets slowly evicted from the picture. It can happen very subtly at first. I'm not saying it's always like something that rebellious people do. There's a danger for anyone because of the routines of life, because of the things that we have come to take as normal. Sometimes it's just easy for God slowly to become in the background. And there's a lot of warnings about this in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10. Paul writes to Timothy, Godliness is a means of great gain, when it's accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish, harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now this is not saying if you're wealthy that that's bad doesn't say that it says the love of my it's a different it's the attitude if this is all and everything that you have in this world that you're seeking for you could go to pretty much any country i'd imagine in the world and see that money rules the world in many ways if i could say it like that and a lot of evil follows from that this is the point here the church was called to have a different attitude to reflect the values of a different kingdom at this time think of smyrna Remember, they were poor, they were in poverty, and they were in tribulation, but Jesus said to them, you're rich. This church is wealthy, and he's saying to them, you're spiritually poor. It's the opposite that he's saying. We always seem to fall into this error, mankind. We mistake the things that we have as blessing in that respect, and we don't give God uh, praise for them, or we assume that we've earned them by our own resources. When Israel came out of the wandering the wilderness. Remember they wandered in the wilderness, they came out of Egypt into this time in the desert where God took 40 years to basically train them and then they entered the nation of the land of Israel and he gave them a warning and he says you're going to come into the land of Israel, my promised land, it's going to be a rich land, there's going to be food everywhere, you're going to do very well. I'm reminding you now, do not forget me when things get good for you. Let me read it to you, it's quite a powerful verse. Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 15, he says, When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances, his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and when you are satisfied, when you have good houses and and you have lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, all that you have multiplies, listen, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. 
That's exactly what Laodicea had done at this time. So they saw themselves as rich, as prosperous, as busy, as active, and as probably as being blessed. But now Jesus Christ says to them, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That is a stinging evaluation. Wretched and miserable there has the idea of being hard and calloused. That means they were not willing to listen to God at this time. They had been rebelling against him for so long that they no longer even noticed they were in rebellion. That is what happens when you reject the message of the gospel again and again and again. They thought they were pretty great at this time. And God says, you're poor, blind and naked. Now this is referring to their spiritual state. They were spiritually poor. The works, whatever this church was doing, it was not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says they were blind. Who blinds men's eyes in this world? 2 Corinthians 4.4 In whose case the God of this world, the God of this world is a small g there, it's, being refer, it's referring to the enemy, not to the Lord. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel and the image of Jesus Christ. That is what he does. That is what he wants us to do. That is literally the cosmic battle that we see going on. Everything to try and stop men looking at the person of Jesus Christ. To stop men accepting that he is the amen, the true and faithful witness. That is what Satan does. He deceives. They were poor, they were blind, and they were naked. Now that expression, as we mentioned, garments are often used as a picture of salvation in the Bible. We've seen these white robes, haven't we? It says they were naked. And remember, these were a people who walked around in very good clothes. They had a wonderful textile industry in this city. But he says, even though you're wandering around in those very nice clothes that you're proud of, you're naked before me, which means you have not accepted the gospel message. It's a sobering thought when we think about it like this. He is saying, maybe, in many respects that a lot of people who were in this church group were not in fact Christians. Now, we see this problem a lot when you've had an established church in the country for a lot of time. It's very easy to, to sign the, the UK census and tick Christian on there, and then people say, well, there's this many Christians in the country. Absolute nonsense. The two don't correlate at all. That's just not how it works. A Christian is someone who has accepted the amen, the true and faithful witness and all those things that I read through those prophecies about who Jesus Christ is, that is what it means to be a Christian. When you repent, you give your life to him. It's a sobering thought. They did not come to church to know Jesus. There's many reasons that people do. Social advancement, money, activities, particularly in eras gone by. When Constantine, the Roman emperor, first nationalised Christianity to become the state religion of Rome, of course, many people who were previously pagans suddenly realised, well, the emperor is Christian now, we've got to kind of toe the line, we've got to be Christian, and if I want my business to carry on, I better make sure I please the emperor. We're, of course, Christians. Stick a cross on top of the building, use the right words, and that's obviously a lot of what happened, and we can see how that causes huge confusion, but I've hopefully made it very clear that is not how you become a Christian. That's not it at all. In Matthew 7, you get that very scary passage where, Jesus, where it says, Jesus warns us. He says, beware of false prophets, those who come in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. That's where that whole expression, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you probably heard that, common in the English language. What it means is that Jesus often referred to, his, to true Christians as sheep, as in he's the shepherd, we're the sheep, we follow the shepherd. That's the imagery he's using. And then he adds to this that sometimes there are going to be wolves who want to come and eat sheep and they're going to dress like sheep to get into that body. And that's a serious thing, and that is often what happens. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
Many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do this and did we not do that? And he goes on and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's, that's a stinging thing. Depart from me, I never knew you. And this is, I believe, what is going on in many parts of Laodicea. And unfortunately, we still see this many times in the world. A lot of what goes on in the world under the banner of Christianity is nothing of the sort. It's so far removed from what we read about in the Bible, from what we see in the example of Jesus Christ. I see examples like this every day. And when I was studying this, my intention was to go into this part in quite a lot of depth to show you some of the spiritual deceptions and the nonsense that goes on. But it was just kind of never-ending. And I sat back and I looked at it and I said, nope, that, that is not really what the focus of this church needs to be about. It's about the amen, the faithful and true witness. But I will give you just a few examples quickly to show you here. Yeah, amen. This just came up the other day, a church in Florida. This is an active porn star, and her, they've started a church for sinners, by sinners. They couldn't have misunderstood the message of Jesus more. It's just one. You may have seen this recently as well. This is Jesse Duplantis. He's a regular on certain television shows. He is, again, using a telethon fundraiser claiming that Jesus needs, is not returning because people have not donated enough money to his ministry. Now we laugh at this, but for some people, you know, desperate people, will give him money because he is offering them something that they really need and he is fleecing them for it. This is a wolf in sheep's clothing as far as I'm concerned because Jesus offered them what they truly need and he would accept nothing for it. He gives it freely. And you see how this, this is Laodicea, as far as I believe. Another one, Kenneth Copeland. He owns about six private jets at the moment, but he's now asking his viewers for another one so that he can avoid various different things. He, I mean, these people are kind of a joke at this stage. Any true Christian doesn't really uh, follow this. But unfortunately, when you see Christianity represented in the media or on the news, it is someone like him they'll use as a representative. And unfortunately, that is just not an accurate picture. It is so far removed from the message and gospel of Jesus Christ, from that beautiful picture of that risen king that we've hopefully been unveiling to you through this book. This stuff is so foreign to it. Or you see it in other religions too, whether it's bowing down to statues, worshipping, kissing the feet of statues. You can see that these are actually people bowing down. If you see that little sun-shaped object in the middle there, inside of that is a consecrated wafer through the Catholic Church, they believe that is the body and blood of Christ. They call it the host, and these people actually bow down in front of it and worship to it. This is not part of what the Bible teaches. It is not part of religion, but yet, through various historical reasons, it is, you know, the world makes no distinction. We must make a distinction in our message. Because if you think about it, if you wanted to deceive people, to get them into this state like Laodicea, so they thought they were in a good place, they thought they were Christians and they were not, what do you do if you want to deceive someone? You don't set up a goat's head and a, a statue to Satan and say this is Satan against God. What you do is you start something very similar. You use the same words and the same name and even the same imagery if you want and you just put a little bit of error in there too. Enough to make sure that they miss the light, they, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what has happened. This is why I wanted to lay out for you just how clear Jesus made it through those prophecies about who it is we worship, who it is we are here to serve. It's only him. All of this other stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is taking us away from that message. What does Jesus say to them? 
He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love and reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, just going back to what we were saying before we look at Jesus' advice is to them, religion can be the greatest deception in the world. Hopefully this makes it very clear just how easy it is because it's a little bit of what's right but also a lot of what's wrong and that's just enough to get you off the right path. We're going to see in the future as we move into the end chapters of Revelation and when I say religion, don't, don't be assumed that this has to be like these old Roman religions where you had temples and gods. You know, religion can be, you don't even need a god to have a religion in that respect. It can be basically just an organised structure or belief system that have its own beliefs, that has punishment if you go against the beliefs, that has something or someone that is given all of your attention. We see secular versions of this too. We know from the Bible, and we're going to study this in depth as we go through it, there will be a man appearing on this earth at one day who will be a wonderful politician. He will speak great words. He will offer solutions to man's problems. Whatever those problems are, they're probably the things he's going to have solutions for. It says he's going to speak wonderful words of peace. People are going to be drawn to him. And this man, Jesus says, is the man of sin. We call him popularly the Antichrist. What it really means is he is the one who stands against everything Christ stands for. And he is using religion to deceive people. And that will happen in the future. It's going to be geopolitical. It's going to involve the finance and the economic system. So this is why it's very important that we study this. And we will hit that in a lot of depth as we go on. But right now, we need to focus on the amen, the true and the faithful. The best way to notice counterfeits is to just understand who Jesus is. That is it. Just spend your time focusing on Jesus. And what does he say to this church now? He wants them to come to him. Even in the state that he's described them in, he wants to help them. He uses merchant language, come and buy from me gold. This was a wealthy city, they understood that language. Not that he's saying you can buy salvation, let me explain. The gold here, I believe, is just referencing the riches that Jesus Christ has. Spiritual salvation and everything that comes with it. We'll share more of that as we go through this book. He says, if you come to me and do that, you will be rich, spiritually rich. You will be clothed in white garments. Again, the garments of salvation. Basically, he is saying, come and cover the shame of your nakedness here. And this is really referencing, if you get that reference, it's referencing back to the story in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were first created, there was no sin in this world. They walked in communion with God, and then they disobeyed God through the deception of Satan and sin and death and pain and suffering and rejection and all these things, physical death that we experience, came into this world. And it says, do you remember? Because in the original form, of they were naked and it says they were whatever form that is. It's quite hard to imagine, really. But then God came to walk with them as he did and it said they were ashamed of their nakedness and they ran to the nearest tree and they made clothes for themselves to cover their nakedness. The shame of their nakedness. That's what he's referencing here. And that is what religion is an attempt to make yourself stand in front of God by your own works, your own coverings, stand before God. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that. I will give you the coverings that you need. And you know the story. He took them and he actually, there was a lamb there stuck in the bush. 
and he killed it and he made clothes for them out of lambskin, thus foreshadowing all those years ago that one day it would have to be the sacrifice of a lamb that would cover people's sin and clothe them with their robes for heaven. What do we call Jesus? What do you see at Easter? The Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That was a Passover lamb that he was referring to there. That's why I said Jesus had to come and die at the Passover festival. These things are all connected there. So Jesus says to them, I want you to buy eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When you come to Jesus, you will no longer be spiritually blind. This is, we sing this in so many songs, don't we? I was, once, I was once blind, but now I see. And this comes from a story in the book of John. What he is basically saying here again is he's referencing a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 1 to 3. I'll read it all to you because so much of Jesus' words come from the book of Isaiah. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is Isaiah. Remember, this is written 500 years at least before Jesus ever existed. But it references so much of Jesus' teaching. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. And of course he's using these foods and delicacies here as a representation of coming to him for salvation. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what, what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good, delight yourself in abundance, incline your ear, come to me, listen that you may live. You see, this message is over and over throughout the Bible. Jesus wants people to come to him to live. He says, and then I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. A couple of verses down, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that is his command. This, Jesus used these words. That is what he is saying to everyone today too. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now is the time. And as we're going to see, that time will run out one day. He then goes on, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Another shocking observation of the church. Jesus is outside. Think of the picture. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. I want to be in that church, but because of your pride, your, your, all these different things that we've looked at in Laodicea, he is not there, but still he is offering himself to them. Those who hear the voice, and obviously in this particular church, there would have been those who, who were true believers, like I've said. You get every one of these churches almost in every situation, the way they're used. Those who hear his voice, he will come in and dine with them. Dining is often used as a picture of intimate fellowship, referencing the kingdom, basically. He says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down on me with my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with him on my father's throne. Those in Laodicea who were his, who heard his voice, who opened that door, who repented, who walked with him, they will be with him in his kingdom when he comes. Now this is remarkable grace. You think those at one stage who were, said they were at risk of being vomited out of his mouth by that lukewarm water are now said to be sitting on his throne with him. This is the grace that Jesus offers people. Now notice again, it says the two thrones mentioned there. I will, sit to hear, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also sat down with him on my father's throne. This is a very important piece of theology that we will touch more as we go through. The throne, Jesus' throne is the throne of David. That is the line of King David, the throne in Jerusalem that we've talked about many, many times. At the moment he is not on that throne, he is with his father on that throne, awaiting until he comes back. 
Many people try and say that the kingdom is now in the church. That is actually not quite correct. The kingdom is future. It is awaiting the returning of the coming king. That's just something that's found its way into our language. I'll finish off. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the last of the seven letters, Jesus' last words, his last appeal to the church of Jesus Christ. Let me summarise what we've heard now in all of these seven churches. We learn about Christ. So this is a summary of everything we've learned about Christ from these seven churches. He is walking in the midst of his churches. He is the eternal God who always existed. He is the one who died for our sins, who rose to defeat death. His word is in his mouth, mighty to save, but also to judge. He has eyes of fire, feet of brass. He walks among us, looking to remove all impurity, watching, evaluating. He is concerned for his glory. His Holy Spirit works through the church. He is utterly holy. He is truth personified. He yields the power to admit or decline entrance to his kingdom. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the origin and source of all creation. That is the risen, glorified king who we worship. What does he say to the church? Eight times he says, repent. He says, wake up, stand firm, remember what you have received and remember what you have heard and his promises to those who hear his voice. He promises them eternal life in the presence of God, that they will not be hurt by the second death. They are invited to the marriage supper of the land, to the inauguration of those kingdom years, to share in Christ's authority, to rule the nations during his kingdom, and we will know him in all his fullness. We will be clothed with God's righteousness. Our names are secured eternally in the book of life. We have that place of stability and honor as a temple in the new Jerusalem. We are protected by God. We have citizenship in the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, we are granted the privilege of ruling and reigning with Christ from his eternal Davidic dynasty, the throne of David. These are just some of the things promised through the scriptures. Truly, we are rich in this world even if we have nothing, through Christ. That is why he said to Smyrna, you have nothing but you're rich. And he says to the Laodicea, you have everything but you're poor because you lack that that really matters. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And we can trust that. The amen, the true and faithful witness. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.